0: Secure human rights. Where does it come from? Where do we go from here? White noise, white noise, white noise, white noise. The basis of law is that it's established for the majority, not for the minority. And that's one of the things that cultural safety asks us to think about.
1: Welcome to White Noise the podcast of the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub. I'm Jenea. I'm a teacher and researcher at the Indigenous Law and Justice Hub at Melbourne Law School. I'm a non-Indigenous settler woman with family connections to India and Ireland. I grew up on Wurundjeri country and I'm so lucky to be learning about Indigenous justice alongside you, our listeners, from the exceptional people we've spoken to through this project. Today we're joined by Dr Janine Mohammed, the CEO of the Lowitcher Institute, the Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Research. Janine's words are full of wisdom. Janine is a Naranga and Ghana woman from South Australia, with decades of experience advocating from the coalface for Indigenous health, wellbeing and cultural safety. Janine shares important public policy lessons from the Australian healthcare system Particularly through the COVID 19 experience, but also so many lessons for the way we work with each other. I really wanted to speak with Janine as part of this podcast project, because there is so much the legal profession can learn from movements happening in nursing and other health professions for how we work with people, particularly cultural safety in our practice, embedding an understanding of culture as strength through our professions and institutions and how to achieve this change structurally. So it sticks. Thank you so much and welcome, Janine.
0: Thank you for having me, Janaya.
1: We're recording today at Lowitch's office on the country of the Wurundjeri people. And we pay respect to elders of this country, their ongoing legal authority and strong histories of justice work. So as is always the first question on this podcast, Janine, who are you, who's your mob, and what are the values that drive you in your work?
0: Well, I think the most important thing about me is that I'm a member of the Naranga and Ghana nations. And I actually grew up in a little place called Point Pierce Mich- Mission, which is in the York Peninsula um, of South Australia. I'm a mum of five, so three daughters and two stepchildren, which is my son and my daughter. I'm living on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, yeah, and look, my past is in nursing, so that's my professional identity, I suppose. But been working in Aboriginal health for the last 25 years, so quarter of a century. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's quite, you know, um, a, a bit of time that I've spent in this space. Mm. Brilliant. And I wanted to ask you about your
1: professional identity Mm -hmm. in nursing and you've now moved into more health policy and advocacy roles. What brought you to nursing originally and what are the values of nursing as a profession resonated with you?
0: I think what brought me to nursing was really my experiences in the health system. So I grew up with my nana um, who um, had a number of chronic illnesses so hence we had um, a high um interface if you like with the health system Mm -hmm. and I saw the good and bad you know of of that I think in by nature I'm a pretty caring person my love language is you know serving people so that was that was you know something that I saw in nursing that I could make a difference in someone's life Mm -hmm. Um, that you're there from essentially the womb you know, to the tomb. And so you're yeah, part of people's a beautiful lives, expression. Yeah, you know, and very important and vulnerable moments. Mm. And I really value that being able to be invited into those spaces. Um, I think it's probably the way my brain works. You know, I'm sure the people with health and legal backgrounds on listening to this podcast would be able to identify with having very much a a way of thinking that is not only hierarchical, so understanding, you know, bodies and body systems, Mm -hmm. but also understanding the holistic and the intent and the nature of systems. So. I think that's kind of how my brain works. So it fitted nursing, the caring side, plus the ability to understand health and health systems, and also, you know, what affected those, those systems. So that's what kind of brought me to nursing. Um, and also because I saw people in my community that had taken on nurse aid roles and mm. domestics in the hospital as well. There were a few Aboriginal health workers. So, you know, that old adage of you can be what you can see. And I wanted to be in, in that space. But I think I quickly learnt once I was in the nursing profession and you asked me a little bit about the values. So I suppose, you know, nurses would say that they're born in the church and raised in the army. (laughs) So you see that when you're going into nursing and the nursing workforce, it's very hierarchical. So your ability to affect change really is about where you are on um, on that ladder of superiority and and therefore you hold more power and of course there's not too many Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nurses when I was around so therefore I wasn't Mm. there was a glass ceiling if you like Um, and I found that glass ceiling pretty quickly um, and my ability to make change and I could see change needed to happen and I, I felt that yeah, I wasn't able to do that, so I, I was only a band aid for my Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander clients that I mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I was so fortunate to to take care of, um, and I wanted more of that. I wanted more of being able to have one on one with my community. Um, so I moved into um, Aboriginal home care programs. Um, aged care programs and that was pretty awesome you know sitting down and taking care of your elders having cup of teas with them you know Mm -hmm. and just learning so much from many um, different elders from all over South Australia and the nation in actual fact. I got to do some of that community work and I wanted more of that again (laughs) so I ended up um, a a colleague of mine asked me to come and work in the state peak body for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Health which is the Aboriginal Health Council of SA Um, yeah and pretty soon I was moving on to national gigs and then got um, exposure to the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Mm -hmm. issues and well you know that just opens your world full of possibilities.
1: So really in context for this discussion, where well, we're going to start talking about health policy now. Mm. So we've been living through this time with the COVID-19 pandemic, mm. which put a lot of pressure on existing systems and exacerbated or made more visible the existing inequalities. I wondered on your perspective about what the pandemic and the experience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people through the pandemic taught us about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health sector.
0: Many of your listeners might have heard that at the beginning of the pandemic um, people were in such an emergency response situation that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities um, were actually given power to mm-hmm. actually do what they needed to do within those communities. And we saw that with community closures, um, with them taking their authority and their ability to design programs uh, that they needed to and therefore use the funds the way that they needed to. So there was all of a sudden this flexibility in um, how Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander community-controlled health services and communities could operate. Um, and what we saw was Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples were six times less likely to, um, to get COVID. And, you know, that was something that... Globally, no other indigenous nation was able to do it at that time, and I think that that wasn't because of the, you know other indigenous peoples n- not having the agent well not having the ability to know what they needed, but it was the agency that they were mm. able to to have. So I think and I hope you know that the Australian government um, really you know saw that Aboriginal health in Aboriginal hands does have the outcomes that we want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was a real opportunity about uh, what we could do into the future with um, more autonomy.
1: Mm. Yeah, and on the flip side, my next question was what does government, what did the COVID environment tell us about government policy relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and wellbeing?
0: Well, I think, you know, having been a CEO for a number of years now, that often often... Um, you know, the real essence of why you set up community control, which is to design, develop and deliver the programs that you want, is is often something that we don't actually get the ability to do because government will have to give us money in um, body parts, you know, mm. and so we have to make that fit as opposed to if we're given a, a pool of funding and we were truly able to do what we needed, we knew the community wanted us to do with those funds. And that's that's about place-based priorities and place-based programs um and you know also having the data (laughs) within our communities to be able to draw upon um, real-time data um, and data that we want to know about um, to be able to not only plan those programs but also measure the impact of those programs as well so um yeah I think that's some of the things that governments could Mm -hmm. do if um if they were able to probably get out of the colonial constructs that we currently have and you know, that means trust um, and trusting that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples can manage their affairs.
1: And do you see some of those changes sticking and us learning from those lessons that came through COVID or do you see that as something that's been kind of left behind a bit now?
0: I think what COVID exposed apart from what we've just discussed um was also you know the ongoing disparity that we have in the social determinants of our health Mm -hmm. we saw it you know in a number of new south wales towns uh rural towns that caravans had to be brought in because of unaddressed long enduring you know housing issues so Mm -hmm. people you know, it's terrible but it was only two, two, two years ago but it feels like it was only yesterday yeah. that, um, of course, we couldn't all use the same bathroom, you know, if someone mm-hmm. in the house was having to isolate. And so that couldn't happen um, in a lot of these towns because uh, there was already overcrowding that existed. Um, so I I think it um, shone a light on those, those issues, whether they're being addressed I don't think so. Um, but I th- what it has given us, I think, is, you know, bureaucracy and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities together are precedence, if you like, that we can actually do um, funding and program development this way. Has it stuck? Probably not. <laughs> but um, in time and with now this, um, as I said, this, Uh, this precedence, hopefully, um, over time we'll see that um, being put into place, that more flexible funding and that trust.
1: We'll all remember what's possible and hang on to it. Yeah. Your work is strongly informed by philosophy and praxis of cultural safety. Mm. The term cultural safety originated in nursing. Yeah. In the thinking of Māori nurses, particularly the writings of Dr Irihapati Ramsden. Mm. You've spoken and published a lot about how in Australia we still throw around terms like cultural safety with cultural competence and cultural awareness Mm. quite interchangeably. Mm. But that cultural safety is quite different in that it rejects some of the bases of these other terms Mm. as inadequate and failing to address the interpersonal context of oppression. I was wondering if you could outline for our listeners what does cultural safety mean to you?
0: Oh, it's been my life work <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um what does it mean to me i, I think it offers us an opportunity and uh, i i always caveat this with the, that there's not um, a silver bullet you know in race relations and resetting mm. race relations but what cultural safety does is it makes us examine power in our relationships and i think. As you've already said, Janaya, the reason why I was so drawn to cultural safety was because, um, A, I didn't see any Indigenous nursing philosophy when Mm. I was at um, university. I didn't even see anything about Indigenous nurses and midwives. And, of course, you know, when settlers and uh, colonists came to this country, they would have needed someone, right, to <laughs> birth their babies and mm-hmm. there were, you know, there were bush nurses here, there were midwives here already. Uh, mm-hmm. We had whole societies that had this workforce already in place and so I kind of what, you know, the, the, what cultural safety asks us to do too is to see what we don't see, yeah, mm-hmm. to really question that if we're talking about Aboriginal health, are we talking about it in a strengths-based way? I know that what I learned in nursing was that all Aboriginal people have diabetes and cardiovascular issues, yeah. not about the strength of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, communities in the face of what did happen in this country. Um, so, yeah, I was always searching for an Indigenous nurse and then I came across Ira Happity Ramston And what she taught me was that what non-Indigenous Australia really needed to do was not focus on us as Indigenous people and learning about our culture
1: because, mm.
0: let's face this, we're, we're beautifully diverse, yeah, mm. um, and you can't learn all there is to know about us. Um, there's no tick list. Mm. And so what non-Indigenous Australia needed to do was to turn the gaze back on themselves um, to understand the structures in which they lived, who created those structures, who benefited from those structures, and how that affects how non-Indigenous and Indigenous Australians uh, live in what we now call Australia. And to learn about racism, but most importantly, what she talks about is colonisation, yeah, and the ongoing effects of it. So notions such as cultural competency or decolonisation, they don't they don't touch on that as much as Ira Hapiti's work does um and I think that of course what happened in Australia Canada New Zealand is is really unique in terms of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander or Indigenous peoples I should say mm-hmm. um and so yeah cultural safety for me is um is is a gift I think from Irihapiti's from from and I know she would um, she has said this that from M- M- maridom, you know the yeah. indigenous knowledge um, mm. that she has given us and it's an opportunity. Mm.
1: And this way of thinking that's originating you know, out of nursing practice, mm. but is so applicable in other contexts where you're working with people. And I've kind of recently been saying to my students sometimes that, you know, mm. law and other health professionals to get them to be thinking about their work more yeah. in that way of, you know, enhancing hopefully people's wellbeing through mm. legal service provision. How can we apply cultural safety in the legal service delivery context?
0: Well, I suppose that the, the basis of um, law, you know, is, is that it's established um, with for the majority, not for the minority, and that's one of the things that cultural safety asks us to think about. And I'll give you an example is that, and I'll give you two actually. <laughs> so back in 2007 we had the national harmonisation of um, health professionals regulation, um, and so that was an act of parliament. And at the time, I was trying to get cultural safety put in there because it was a real opportunity for that to have an effect on um, what people were taught at university. Because this that law actually sets some standards around what education you undertake. It actually talks to how we um, act as a professional. So it could have actually talked to racism and people to be held accountable. And of course, it did. This piece of legislation, its its um, its counterparts in Aotearoa and also in Canada, did mention cultural safety mm-hmm. and how um, health professionals needed to respond and give care to Indigenous peoples. So that was a real opportunity, and the. The reason why I think it didn't go through was because it wasn't the right time, but also because people didn't even understand what cultural safety mm. was, but we all saw the outcomes, which were preventable deaths in hospitals due yes. to people's racist views, racial profiling, you know their bias, whatever you want to call it. There was that opportunity, and I think the other piece of legislation that has really I think affected indigenous women in particular was. Um, insurance and insurance law around birthing Mm. so of course you know hospitals and now insurance it's mainly for women that birth in capital cities our rural hospitals have gone our remote hospitals disappeared really so as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women we're three times more likely to die during childbirth and 26% of our births are in rural and remote areas so that means a cultural practice that we've held for many years because of now legislation and rationalisation of hospitals, Indigenous women can't birth on country, which, of course, country is such a strong part of who we are as our, our identity, as our anchor, about our kinship, our genealogies, um, what language we speak, You know how we, how we interact from one nation to the next is all about country. Law is essentially a part of country.
1: You've been centrally involved in some of the big step forward for your profession in embedding cultural safety thinking, nursing being the largest workforce in the healthcare system. When you were leading the Council of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives, You worked with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency and the Australian (laughs) College of Nursing and the Australian College of Midwives regarding systemic embedding of cultural safety across the profession. Mm. And ultimately principles about cultural safety were added to the codes of Mm. conduct for nurses in 2017, 18. Mm. Looking back after a few years, what was the experience like through this initial change of the code
0: and subsequent implementation? You know, one of my philosophies in life is when when everything's cruisy, you don't learn. Mm. (laughs) We actually learn through hardship because that really tests us about who we are and grows us. So, you know, growing pains. (laughs) I think that's where that term comes from. So um, it was absolutely a growth period for me and I think many of the um, amazing men and women that were a part of that movement um, and our membership that came along and supported us. It was, yeah, a really beautiful moment in time as well um, because what actually happened was we had to take people on a journey to get them to understand that cultural safety wasn't about learning about Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, it was learning about them and Mm -hmm. really a a decolonisation of of the mind um, and an enlightenment, if you like. It was parts of the learning was around critical race theory. Some of it was actually about people getting really uncomfortable, again, where the magic happened for these individuals. Yeah. And then when we came to the crunch and we embedded it into nursing codes of conduct, we had a bit of kickback, you know, in the media. So it was really, you know, um, amazing that... The people that came along in that journey with me, they actually stepped into their responsibility and they t- took hold in the media and it was non-Indigenous people speaking about how the system that non-Indigenous people had created needed to change and that they were, wanted to be a part of that change. And so there was an unwavering support and camaraderie, if you like. And then we, we did some work, as she, as you would mentioned, with, with Opera that long-awaited work that I'd tried to forge forward on yes. um, with Bill A and Bill B um, back in 2007. Um, and I think, look, there were, uh, look, things happen incrementally, I think, mm. and one of the things, there were many great wins in that, um, the fact that, you know, Opera championed this work, but there was also some disappointments. Um Cultural safety is really specific and, you know, even today just I've given people a nutshell kind of, you know, um, explanation of of what it is. And what we were trying to do was to get health professionals across the line to understand what cultural safety was in a really simplistic way um, and also the public to understand what cultural safety was in a simplistic way. But it's not a simplistic notion. It's a, it's a whole philosophy, if you like. There's a um, lot to be undone in yeah. your land. So I think at that point I think it was really hard for me to sit in a room and almost go through a reductive process yes. of this really complex and beautiful piece of work that Irihapiti had given to us. So I think I found that quite hard, yeah, just having to, as I said, reduce cultural safety to a few sentences and define it in that way when it was much more than that. And, of course, the outcome is much more than what we were saying the outcome was going to be as well. Yeah, it was changing yeah. systems um, and embedding cultural safety into a system, which meant it wasn't reliant anymore on personalities and people being um, taking leadership in it and championing it as, an, as a notion. It, it actually had its own place and it was enshrined in law so you know taking law that had you know put us on missions taking law that had done so many ill things to aboriginal torres strait islander peoples in this country and actually using it for our benefit or our justice was was pretty cool yeah
1: <laughs> something that we're really advocating for at the hub in the legal practitioner space so it's great to have this conversation mm-hmm. with you about professions that are really well on that journey and you can look up um, some of our work at the europe justice commission with dr cavillo's evidence if you're interested in hearing more about um the state of the legal profession in relation to cultural safety Perhaps practice <laughs> You are CEO here at Lowitcher, Mm. which is Australia's only community-controlled health research institute. You moved to a community-controlled structure with an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander membership base in 2020. Could you please explain to people what that change in structure actually looks like and why Lowitcher chose to make that move?
0: Mm. So, Lawitcha was really established because Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people had research done on them. It wasn't biased for us mm-hmm. and with us. And lots of people have, you know, made their careers out of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander research, um, with little being given back to the community. So researchers coming in, taking Indigenous knowledges. You know, historically there was even research done on us that was um, atrocious. You know, medical experimentation. And of course, you know, that research then informed laws and decisions that put us, you know, in horrible positions, you know, on missions and reserves, um, our rights taken away, not even you know, acknowledged within our constitution. And so what we have is the ongoing intergenerational impact of that, where Indigenous people are not interested in research anymore because we've been over-researched, therefore we're not interested in it as a profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of, co- of course, Western constructs would have it that our ways of knowing, being and doing aren't revered. It's Western knowledges that are revered. Mm-hmm. So Lowerture was established to really turn that around to grow the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health research workforce and to have research done that was by, with and for us. Um, yes. And so... It was a natural step then that Lowitch Institute, which was governed by an Aboriginal and non Aboriginal board, um, and that served us, do not get me wrong, because there are many amazing non Indigenous allies who are researchers who have grown up um, and worked with and journeyed with and let lead, you know, Mm. when the time was right, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander uh, researchers. And when I say let lead, I mean that there were times when Aboriginal researchers were at risk within these institutions and so non-Indigenous allies would often lead out because they would take the blows, you know, and trailblaze into those spaces. And of course then there's non- there's, there's Aboriginal people that have just, you know, been the trailblazers too. Yeah, it was a natural a progression for us to um, be self-determining and that means that then all of the decisions that are made about Lower Institute um, are by, for and with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples and we're really proud to say that um, we're 60% Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander employed. Part of the work that Lowitche Institute does is actually give out grants to um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander researchers and organisations so 100% of those grants go to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and only to Aboriginal community controlled health services because you know universities get a large piece of the pie And non-Indigenous people get a large piece of the pie when it comes to Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander health research. And so we trust our people and we know that Aboriginal health and Aboriginal hands is our way of wanting to do um, this work, which is growing our research agenda and also growing the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health research workforce.
1: We've spoken quite a bit on this podcast in previous episodes about the decolonisation of research Mm -hmm. and things that haven't been done so well by research institutions such Mm -hmm. as universities. Mm -hmm. So uh, could we continue the conversation talking about your current research priorities and how Lowitcher commissioned research agendas, outputs and methodologies reflect this grounding in Aboriginal ways of working as an Aboriginal
0: organisation? Our research agendas, um, you know, it's really simple, but um, you know something that we don't see enough of, which is we go out and we talk to our Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander peoples and communities and ask them what they want researched. Mm. Um, And so that then all goes into the mix um, leading up into our conference, and that's actually happening this year. From that from our conference, we actually come out with a conference statement, which also um, is a part of the ingredients, if you like, for our research agenda. Um, And for the last, well, the last four years, what our focus or our research focus has been on is empowerment. Uh, sovereignty cultural safety in health systems and also connectedness Um, and then we've have also have our policy priorities as well which is around genomics Um, we've also done a lot of nation building which I know you've been a part of as well Janaya and then um, we also did a piece of work more recently that's really come to the fore uh, which is around climate and health mm-hmm. um, So I, I think for lower Chi Institute you know what we absolutely want to do is make sure that whatever research comes out of our research grants that it's not just to sit on a dusty shelf we want to make sure that the knowledge translation happens. Um, mm-hmm. So the way that we run our grants is that at the very beginning of the research question, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people are already being asked and, and the researchers are already thinking about how they're going to knowledge translate mm-hmm. um, this research back to community and up to policy. Um, and Chi Institute, we actually fund knowledge translation. So our, um, our grants have the opportunity to have a knowledge translation plan and then we help them to implement that. Some of the amazing work that I think um, really shows the impact of our research and what we've funded, um, and this is only one piece, is the cultural determinants work Mm. of uh, Professor Ray Lovett from ANU and his work now um, is in the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Plan, you know. um, We always knew as Indigenous people, right, that the cultural determinants were a really important factor in our health outcomes. But Ray had you know, gone around to many of the non-Indigenous research institutions and couldn't get it funded. So mm. ourselves and I think it was AATSIS uh, funded Ray's work um, and now you know, he has uh, lots of doors opening to him on that work. But, um, yeah, I, I, look, the impact that we look at is really different, I think, um, with our research. So it's not, it's not about how many publications you get in peer-reviewed journals, although that is important. Really, our impact is around how many Aboriginal people were employed on the grant, how many Indigenous businesses were co contracted onto the grant, and also, you know, what was the impact for community um, at the end of that as well, how the community feel about the research. And often um, those research grants then go on and they can apply. So we're really, that's uh, to NH and MRC and ARC, so which, are, which for us in health are our big non-Indigenous research bodies, the mm-hmm. statutory bodies that um, commission out research. Um, and so that's really an impact for us as well, that the research continues. But most importantly, that there's health impacts that that happen out of the research as well.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it reminds me, I was thinking um, back while you were talking to um, my backgrounds in the public service after Mm -hmm. I left law school to do some policy work and I remember walking around a public service office one time and I noticed that someone was using a big Law Reform Commission report just to prop up their computer monitor. And, you know, I thought, you know, like that's just such a sum up of, you know, what happens sometimes Mm -hmm. with these big, bodies of work and knowledge building that we do sometimes that just are are tucked away in offices or used for different purposes and really that guides me through my research you know stepping into research work is what is the impact
0: on the ground absolutely and the stories and the compounding trauma that people Mm. have through having to tell those stories that go into those reports time and time again and i think at the beginning of this podcast you you acknowledged elders and the patience of our elders before all of those reports and all of those recommendations that are already in those reports that have never actually been implemented Mm. and yet we continue to do research and write reports um, that only reiterate what what hasn't been done already
1: so you mentioned the 2021 Lowitcher publication called Culture is Key Towards Cultural Determinants Driven Health Policy. And mm-hmm. we're seeing cultural determinants as a determinant of health popping up more and more, I think, in national conversations. So we've had the Michael I National Study of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health and Wellbeing that really takes a cultural determinants lens. And also some work through closing the gap campaign reporting. Could you unpack a little bit for our audience what it looks like to embed thinking about cultural determinants of health across policy making.
0: There's a number of domains that really um, describe collectively the cultural determinants of health. So they are uh, family, kinship and community is a cultural determinant. Uh, Connection to country is a cultural determinant. Self-determination and leadership, organisations like the Lowitcher Institute Mm. where we can, um, you know, determine our work is absolutely a cultural determinant. Uh, Indigenous language and you mentioned the uh, National Partnership Agreement on Closing the Gap. Mm. So that's absolutely one of the ways that we are talking about cultural determinants and reform, particularly policy reform, um, through the agreement. Cultural expression and community, uh, Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous beliefs, um, is is you know also a cultural determinant. And I suppose in saying all of this, what the um, what the MK study really showed was that in systems when you're not able to express your cultural determinants or your cultural determinants aren't present, that's a space where racism is present Mm -hmm. so i know that sounds simple but when you think about it if you're um you know you're in an education system and the dominant language is english okay we've all gone through that system but where's our cultural determinants thought about in terms of language being Mm -hmm. a part of that education system so that's when we kind of say well this is systemic racism because that whole education system is devoid um of our culture Um, our history isn't told um, with truth-telling at the center of it and therefore there's not a pride in identity that can be shown and our ways of knowing being and doing aren't revered so when you think about policy um, and testing the cultural determinants against policy we've already spoken about um, birthing on country and if connection to country is you know a, a cultural determinant surely then um, policy that, uh, and I hate to say the word allows, but that's the only one I can think about that or encourages Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women to birth on country, mm. is then not not being tested again for us Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples. I um, mean, I think the other one that I think about and probably relevant to your listeners is native title. Yeah, yeah? so if it's actually about access to country, um, and we're we all know about homelessness in Australia, and I always talk about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who've driven off our land, yeah. so we've been homeless in a sense, of, um, not able to access our land in its, you know, in its full potential, yeah. <laughs> for the last two hundred years. And then you put on top of that the compounding issue of not being able to live on land in housing that is um, adequate and of the, you know, of the nature that it should be in a, in, a, in a Australia, which is I think had 27 years of unprecedented um, economic growth and, um, you know, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people are still living in in you know inadequate in housing but not even on their country. So those are the sorts of things that I think when we're creating policy really really have to test it against our cultural determinants and whether that's allowing us to express culture I use a really simple example of in my community in South Australia we have football netball carnivals Mm -hmm. yeah and um, we couldn't get funding for those carnivals and that was because it was seen through um, the eyes of well it's just Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people getting together and you know kicking a football around or playing netball when really it was so much more than that before colonization Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples came together a lot, you know, to mm. play sport, to trade, to, you know, arrange marriages, all of these things. Um, and now, that's not seen as a value add in, in Australian society. So we had to fight really hard to get funding from the government because it wasn't seen as in the Western paradigm as, as something that would be of benefit. But, of course, when you're able to do these events, express pride and culture and competitiveness, <laughs> then, of course, that's going to have great health outcomes. It's actually about seeing it, you know, through a different lens, mm-hmm. what's important to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. And I know a couple of colleagues that work in youth justice. Yes. And one of the things that caseworkers have to do is have, you know, cultural plans now. Mm-hmm. But as non-Indigenous people writing those cultural plans, um, I think it's really, really important that they involve Aboriginal Torres Strait mm-hmm. Islander people. So, and even the people that then deploy those plans are often, you know, mentors and and what not, and they're not always going to do what non Indigenous people think are important to do in a cultural plan. Yeah. But who should who should decide, you know, what's in a cultural plan and the people carrying out the cultural plan should be Aboriginal Torres Strait Island yeah. peoples, yeah.
1: In twenty twenty the Australian Human Rights Commission released Uyani Uthangani, the Women's Voices Report, led by Commissioner June Oscar, mm. who's the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner and mm. the first woman to hold that role. It's a landmark piece of consultation with a report of almost 600 pages mm. capturing views of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women across a broad range of areas. In relation to health and well-being, women highlighted that addressing the disproportionate gap in health and wellbeing between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and other Australians can only be achieved through a holistic and comprehensive approach to healing. The interconnectivity of social, economic and cultural determinants of health means that the existing siloed approach to addressing specific elements of poor physical and mental health will continue to have a limited impact. Mm. What does healing mean to you?
0: Mm.
1: How does it differ to the model of health embedded in Australian health systems?
0: You know, Janine, I think healing is very different for everyone and that's what equity is, right? So Mm. equity is not about giving everyone the same. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, nursing will often say that, but I treat everyone the same. That's not equity because it won't give you the same outcome for everyone. Mm -hmm. You actually have to meet people where they're at. And that means building a relationship and, um, you know, them being able to offer individual solutions. And that's, for me, what what gives us equality. So healing for me, when you said that, when you asked that question, really um, it begins with what you already see move this nation. And that's truth telling. I was on the steps of parliament, uh, right beside that Torrens River, when uh, Kevin Wright gave the apology. And, you know, for as symbolistic as what people may describe that as, for me as an individual, that meant people were heard for the ter- first time, that their stories were believed and that there was a bit more trust gained. Um, and always at the centre of um, healing, I think, is trust. And if you've ever listened to one of my talks, you know, my, one of my coined phrases is, will only ever move at the speed of trust? So, yeah, I think healing for me is starts with... Truth-telling, you know, there's a big decision coming up in Australia, yeah, um, and about Voice Treaty and truth processes, um, and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Of course, lowich Institute, our patron, is uh, Pat Anderson, one of the lead conveners of mm. the Uluru Statement, um, and I think that will be another. Um, that if we get a yes outcome, I think that that will be another step forward in our healing process.
1: Finally, you've been involved in the Birthing on Country movement. Yes, you've shared yes, a little yes, bit about yes, this today. Yeah. And Loa has spoken about this as a metaphor for the best start in mm. life for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander babies mm-hmm. through transforming how we have babies, talking about the social, cultural and spiritual risks mm-hmm. of current systems Mm. so asking as a woman of a certain age is becoming (laughs) very interested in these (laughs) topics increasingly could you please share your reflections as a mother and as a health practitioner on what we should all understand about Indigenous knowledges relating to bringing children into the world
0: I think it's the most beautiful moment you know where true healing can happen and true um, empowerment you know of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander women and men in this mm. space, you know, I think back to the NT intervention, um, and yes. which is very close to my heart, and how Aboriginal men um, were portrayed mm. in in that um, intervention. And I, I think there's there's still um, an intergenerational impact of that, where Aboriginal men were perceived to not be good dads, yeah, mm. and not shouldn't be present in their child's life because they weren't going to be good enough anyway. So I think it's a moment where we can redefine those stories about who Indigenous parents are, um, and of course, as an Indigenous mum of five children, mm. you know I've been through my own battles where you know the what was messaged to me was that we didn't make good mums mm. <laughs> and we didn't make good decisions for our babies, and that's just so not true. Um, and the the when we say the best possible start in life is being birthed on country it means to be have choices you know in yeah. our birthing story and to be um to walk into that room being judged as the best mum in the world mm-hmm. and what an amazing start for this child to be born into this culturally rich family um and what an opportunity um and so that what that's really what culturally safe health services would look like um happy You know, people that feel that they have choices, that feel that they're going to be amazing parents, that feel trusted by the system Um, and, you know, um, at the end of it, happy, healthy babies, you know, with um, all of the opportunities to have the best care for those babies. I think if we could start like that, being born into this world and we can finish that same way, being strong and proud in our culture and living in a society that really does value us and our voices and our knowledges, I think um, we would be an amazingly mature country. On the topic, I think, of Indigenous knowledges, you know, the one, um, I suppose, case study if you like that I think of is what we're seeing at the moment which is climate change Mm. and in climate change you know Indigenous peoples have contributed the least to climate change Mm. yet we will be affected the most because of those unaddressed inequities in the cultural and and social determinants and you know in terms of cultural determinants what we will see is sacred sites being destroyed Um, we'll see Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people again displaced from country, we will see. You know, many of the Pacific Islands are going to go through um, food security problems, and therefore move to Australia. Um, so. The future's not looking great on a number of fronts for us as Indigenous peoples, whether that's our cousins, you know, in their surrounding countries or that's us as First Nations people on this country. Um, so, you know, where Indigenous knowledge is sort of fit into that for me is really colonisation really is one of the perpetrators of climate change if colonisation didn't happen in this country the way that it happened and indigenous knowledges were listened to and revered and valued at the start we actually wouldn't have this intensification of climate change that we do have so to flip that on its head I think indigenous knowledges in the conversation and in the policy making of climate change needs to happen um, at the most senior levels and I can see that you know Fortunately, we've been a part and been invited into those spaces um, with this uh, new government. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we hadn't been in previous governments, but I will point your listeners towards um, Lowitch's piece of work that we did with um, Indigenous academics on um, our climate and health and um, some of the amazing stories that are told um, through that report, um, including, you know, um, heat exhaustion is, you know, um, for Indigenous people it's on the rise and it's a killer um, and things that we don't even think about where Indigenous people are living, you know, 47-degree consecutive day con- conditions, no power, and that means, you know, medicines like insulin, which needs to be climate controlled, are spoiling and people are putting their lives at risk. Water holes are drying up you know animals that used to come to those places are no longer there so food sources are drying up Um, and when we scale that up that means that um, our flora is going to be affected which means our medicines are going to be affected so um, it's an urgent issue for everyone where I think Indigenous knowledges and um, Indigenous um, impact really need to be uh, thought about and brought to the table So, yeah, that's what I'd say, you know, Indigenous knowledges are really important and um, they're there, I think, for not just Australia to listen to, but for the globe to think about Indigenous people globally and um, and our knowledges that have kept us alive for what 100,000 plus years
1: crucial time and encourage everyone to yeah take a look at that reading mm. list that we've put together for you today throughout this conversation but also then you know to take action from it Janine thank you so much it's been such a pleasure to learn from you today
0: thank you for having me
1: Thank you for listening to White Noise. For more information about the resources we discussed in this episode and more information about Janine's work, please see the show notes on our website. See you next time.